Well, good evening, everyone. Hope you guys had a good time in your groups. And for uh, everybody who's joining us via live stream, hello to, to you guys. Well, before we get started, I think it would be good for us to open up in a word of prayer. So if you can bow with me and pray for our time. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, because your word, your word knows us. Your word knows our hearts, Lord, and your word can speak into our hearts in a way that nothing else can. And Father, I just pray that as we look into your word this evening, that we would heed um, the, the words that are given, that we would know that these things are applicable to our lives, and that your, you would help us and your spirit would be with us, Lord, as we seek to put off the things that you would uh, desire us to put off, and as we seek to put on the things that you desire us to put on, Lord. But all, this, all of this is fueled by your good news, your good news that Christ has saved us from our sins. So thank you, Father, for the chance that we have to look into your word and for the instruction that it provides in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as you guys undoubtedly discussed in your groups, the passage that we're, we'll be discussing today is ostensibly about how we handle our money. But you also may have picked up on the fact that this passage is also about something deeper than that. At its core, the passage that you guys discussed tonight was about worship. Worship meaning what we regard as valuable and what we regard as not valuable. And as we'll see, our money and our wealth is ultimately not what is truly valuable. And what we do as a result of that truth, the imperatives that we see in this passage, they're actually really incredible commands. And it should fill us with joy and fill us with hope. So I hope that this passage will help you all have a more godly perspective on your money, as it has definitely helped me to have that. So um, before we get started, let's just read the, the passage again, just to refresh our minds on this. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So as always, we want to spend a little bit of time understanding how we got here in this passage. Earlier in this chapter, Paul described the false teachers who were motivated by financial gain. So we'll start looking at the context here. But this isn't Paul's first mention of financial gain. In verse 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says that godliness with contentment is great gain. And then he goes on to detail the perils of loving money and desiring to be rich. The reality, though, is that some people in the church, they actually were rich. See, Timothy's church was in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a major city, both from a political standpoint, but also from a commercial standpoint. So there were presumably a lot of wealthy individuals in Ephesus and we can assume also that some of those wealthy, wealthy individuals were also in the church. Now, not everybody in the church was trying to get rich through peddling false doctrine, like the false teachers were. Some people in the church just were rich, and it may have been through some legitimate business that they had that. 
So the question really comes up, how is Timothy to deal with those in his congregation who were already wealthy? What are the rich supposed to do with their wealth? And for a lot of us, the way that we look at wealth and the wealth that people have is, well, it's your money. You can do with it what you want. If you want to save it, save it. If you want to spend it, spend it. It's yours, so you, get, you decide what you want to do with it. But is that right? Does Christ care about what you do with your wealth? And the answer should be fairly obvious. Christ does care about what you do with your wealth. He cares tremendously about it. In fact, it's one of the topics that Christ addresses the most in Scripture. If you do account, there are over 2,300 references to money in the Scripture, twice as many as there are about faith and prayer combined. And why is that so? Why is money such a heavily addressed topic in the Scriptures? Well, it's because there aren't many things that reveal what we worship more than how we handle our money. The Scriptures have a lot to say about money because there aren't many things that reveal what we worship more than how we handle our money. So starting in verse 17, Paul starts off by first identifying the target of his instruction. He says, As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty. And that's our first point for today. It's the identity of the rich. The identity of the rich. Now, this passage is directed at those who are rich. And immediately, my reaction and many of your reaction might be, well, I'm not that rich, so does this really apply to me? And the last thing that I want to do is make light of anyone who has legitimate financial need, but I believe that I can safely say that for most of us, we are rich. The Lord has given abundantly above and beyond what is required to live each day. So when we think of the word rich, we tend to, we tend to use ourselves as the baseline, right? And our, our minds go to, well, when we think of rich, anybody who has more than me is rich. And anybody who doesn't have more than me, they're not quite rich. So we think lifestyles of the rich and famous. We think penthouses, vacation homes, luxury vehicles, those types of things when we think of rich. And while that certainly qualifies as rich, you can also have much less lavish of a lifestyle and still be rich. So for us who are rich in the present age, the Lord has some specific instruction. But for all of us, whether we're rich or we're poor, there are principles that we can extract because both the poor and the rich can idolize riches. So at the beginning of this passage, Paul immediately makes a distinction here. He could have just said, for those who are rich, but then he specifies the rich in this present age. So very subtly, Paul is indicating that those who are rich in the present age, that is with financial and material wealth, they're not necessarily rich in the life to come. Paul is immediately setting the, the groundwork and the foundation for the fact that you can be rich in different ways. You can be rich in the present age, or you can be rich in the future, after the present age, in the life to come. So one key point here is that there are different kinds of riches. There are different kinds of riches that we can pursue. So we'll talk more about future riches a little bit later, 
But right now, Paul is targeting those who are rich in the present age. So those who are rich from an earthly or a temporal perspective. But notice when Paul identifies the rich in this present age, he doesn't say this in sort of any derogatory sense, but matter-of-factly. He doesn't say, if you're rich, shame on you. He says, for those who happen to be rich, here are some instructions for you. So it's not a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin to be wealthy. In fact, many of God's people have been materially rich. We read through the scriptures, we see people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and David, just to name a few, and they were all rich from a material and earthly perspective. So having wealth or not having wealth doesn't put us on any higher or lower moral ground. Some, God has given wealth. Some, he has given not as much wealth. But although it's not a sin to have wealth, it would also be very foolish for us to ignore the fact that scriptures give a lot of warnings specifically to those who are rich. Christ himself, he said that it's only with difficulty that a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not a sin to be rich, but you are in quite a vulnerable spot if you're rich in the present age. So that's who Paul is targeting here. Those who are in the church in Ephesus who had material wealth. And the first instruction that Paul gives those who are rich is that they should not be haughty. So haughty. To be haughty means that you're proud. It's to view yourself more highly than you ought to view yourself, to have this inflated view of yourself. So Paul is saying that the wealthy shouldn't base their identity on the fact that they are wealthy. The instruction is given to the rich because riches can make you think that you're better than people who have less. Riches can make you think that you're better. So the truth that Paul is communicating here is that the more you have, the more susceptible you are to pride. And you can start to think that your wealth is a sign of God's favor on you, and you can start to think that you have wealth because of something inherent in you, something inherently better about you than someone else. Now, I don't think any of us would actually say that, but subconsciously, we might start to believe that you have wealth because you work hard. Or you have wealth because you're smart. Or you have wealth because you are X, Y, or Z. All those things are a lie. If you have wealth, you have it because God gave it to you. Period. If you have wealth, you have it because God gave it to you. So there are people who work much harder than you, who are much poorer than you. There are people who are smarter than you, who are poorer than you. And there are people who are more X, Y, and Z than you, who are poorer than you. So if you have anything, it's because God gave it to you. And because God gave it to you, two things, you shouldn't be ashamed of what you have or don't have. And conversely, you shouldn't be proud about what you have or don't have. Being rich doesn't mean that you're more favored by God than anyone else. Also, being poor doesn't mean that you're less favored. Both the rich and the poor are required to be stewards of what they've received. But, again, we can't ignore the fact that there are many more warnings given to the rich in scriptures than there are to the poor. Because there are very particular temptations that come along with being wealthy. And Paul is addressing one of them here. And that's pride. So if you are rich, and to most of us here, we are to varying degrees, the temptation will be to look down 
on someone with less. And James warns about this in his epistle. He says that showing partiality to the wealthy person with fine clothes while despising the poor person with shabby clothes is sinful. And we can think about, let's say on a Sunday, if someone walks in here and they're dressed well, they're dressed like we would dress, then we tend to view them favorably. But if someone walks in here and they're dressed not as we would dress, their clothes are maybe kind of shabby, there may be some subconscious looking down on that we have. So if we identify this in our own hearts, a subtle looking down on someone when they look a little bit more run down, or if their home isn't as nice, or their clothes are pretty old, if we see that in our hearts, we have to go to the Lord, and we need to confess that, and we need to put that off. If you're a wealthy Christian, and your identity and your worth are not defined by your wealth and the lifestyle that it provides you, your identity is defined by the one who saved you and whom you follow. So our income or our net worth, they shouldn't dictate our lifestyle more than our faith does. Our income or net worth shouldn't be a greater indicator of our lifestyle than our faith. So for most of you, I don't think you're the person who's really seeking the vacation homes or the yachts or the private jets. And I'm there with you. As I've had to examine my own heart before the Lord with regards to this passage, it's really easy to give myself a pass just because I'm not driven for the need for these overt luxuries. But putting aside those overt signs of wealth, Paul goes deeper here. As usual, Paul goes for the heart. He says that the rich in this present age should not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And that brings us to our second point. It's the insecurity of riches. The insecurity of riches. So when you have a lot, your tendency is to put hope in it and not in God. And this hope goes beyond just those external displays of wealth and identity seeking. This encompasses the desire for financial security as well. You might say, well, I don't need to have all those things. I just need to have enough. Enough where I don't need to worry about taking care of myself or my family. I just want to have enough where I don't have to deal with the uncertainty of whether or not I will have enough. So this is something that I've had to confess to the Lord. If your assurance and your security and your comfort doesn't come from God, but it comes from your paycheck or your investment balances, you are putting your hope in riches. Well, you might ask, what's wrong with just wanting enough? What's wrong with just wanting enough to take care of yourself and your loved ones? Nothing. Nothing's wrong with that desire. But the question is, who or what do you trust to provide that to you? Who or what do you trust to provide that to you? And Paul gives us the truth here. Money cannot give you certainty that you will have enough. And that's probably a mind-blowing truth to those with a worldly mindset. Money cannot give you certainty that you will have enough. You may think that it will, and we're conditioned by the world to believe that it will, but will you believe what the world tells you? That money is the one thing that you can absolutely be certain in? Or will you believe what Paul says right here? Money will not give you certainty. Having the desire to have enough is not evil. 
But when money becomes where you place your faith and your trust, then it's a problem. When your security is in your own ability to earn an income or your ability to store up wealth and grow it in the stock market, are those things what you trust to take care of you? If so, your hope and your confidence are in riches. So this one hits home, doesn't it? But I can't really let up because scriptures don't let up either. If we turn to Luke 12, Christ tells us the parable of the rich fool teaching his followers that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And I'll read that. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 16. And this is Christ speaking. He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Doesn't that sound appealing? Verse 20, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So here, we've got someone who thinks he's being prudent, financially savvy. He's storing up for himself his nest egg, his financial security. Ladies, this is a responsible guy. But God, in no uncertain terms, calls him a fool. That's not subtle. He calls him a fool. In Proverbs 11.28, much more concisely, the word says, he who trusts in his riches will surely fall. If that's not a dagger to the heart of someone who trusts in his riches, I don't know what is. Those words, security, assurance, comfort, trust, confidence, hope, those are not neutral words. Those are religious words. They're words that describe what we worship where we find the most assurance, where we find the most comfort, the most security, the most confidence, the most hope, my friends, that's where we find our gods. These things are mentioned here precisely because we are prone to them. It's our nature. We believe that if we just had more money, we could solve our problems. We have a deeply and profoundly religious relationship with our money. We have a deeply and profoundly religious relationship with our money. So whether we're aware of it or not, when we start looking to money to give us peace of mind or happiness, it's akin to putting our faith in money to deliver us from our problems and give us salvation. And whatever we put our faith and trust in for deliverance and for salvation, we're worshiping. And before we know it, money becomes a false god. And if you consider this to be a stretch, we just need to look at some other of Christ's words. In Matthew 6, 24, you all know this, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Christ directly compares God and money there. And again, in this very passage that we're studying tonight, 
in the next verse, Paul makes a direct comparison. Don't put your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Riches or God. Riches or God. Right? Christ is comparing riches and God precisely because of our propensity to make riches our God. We find our safety and our security in having enough money. Or sometimes we worry or we fret or are anxious because we feel like we don't have enough money. Those are two sides of the same coin. It's putting our hope and putting our trust in money and its ability to give us comfort or security or safety or identity, all things that we're supposed to find in God and in Him alone. So when we think of idolatry, you know, sometimes we tend to picture overtly religious effigies or religious rituals, right? But this hits a lot closer to home. We don't tend to think of something as innocuous as checking our brokerage balances as a religious ritual. But there might be far less of a difference than we think between, you know, in the morning pouring a cup of coffee, logging into your bank website, and then the Israelites bowing down and worshiping the golden calf. They're closer than we think. Do our bank account balances give us more comfort than Jesus? Because if it does, we need to confess that, and we need to ask the Lord for forgiveness and for change. Do we find more joy on payday than we do on Sundays? Because if we do, our God is likely something other than Jesus, and we need to confess that, and we need to ask the Lord for change. And not only is trusting in our riches uncertain and ultimately disappointing, it's also actively destructive. It's destructive to our spiritual life. Trusting in riches is not just disappointing, it's destructive to our spiritual life. If we just go back a few verses to 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, it says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So loving money brings you ruin and destruction and draws you away from the faith and into pain. The lie is, is that hoping in money will give us freedom. But the truth is the opposite. It enslaves you. And we can actually see this happening for a lot of people. How many times when people are struggling spiritually, can we actually trace that back to placing their hope in money? The husband who is constantly missing from home and doesn't shepherd his wife and his kids because he needs to work the long hours. Love of money. The wife who is discontent with what she has and harbors bitterness towards her husband. It's love of money. Or the person who is unable to commit to the church because he's too busy with career. It's love of money. It happens right in front of us. Love of money doesn't give us freedom, but it ensnares. Proverbs 4.23, another verse you, you all know well. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. What we worship affects your entire life. So if we worship money, we won't be doing well spiritually. So what's the solution? 
What is the proper perspective that we should have then? Paul gives us the alternative next. He says, set your hope on God, place your, hope, place your confidence in God, find your comfort, your assurance, your security in God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So in other words, instead of trusting in your income or your assets to provide, instead trust that you have a God who can and who does provide abundantly. The reality is you do have enough. You do have enough. But it's not because of how much money you have. It's because you have a heavenly Father who doesn't withhold any good thing. Even more than that, it says that God provides us with everything to enjoy. So having a godly relationship with your money doesn't mean that you live a, a life of asceticism and sadness, that you give away all your money and you never have any nice things, where all you eat is potatoes and all you wear are the potato sacks that the potatoes came in. That's not what is being talked about here. He's given us all things to enjoy. So what you have, enjoy it. I'm not here to criticize your homes or your cars or your clothes or anything like that. God's provisions are good things to enjoy, but they're terrible things to worship. God's provisions are good things to enjoy, and we should enjoy them, but they're terrible things to worship. And when we settle for earthly treasures and we put our hope in them, we miss out on the infinitely greater treasure of a God who loves us and calls us to himself. The command to not put your hope in riches is not a call to a lesser joy. It's a call to pursue the greatest joy by not letting other things steal your heart away from what will give you true satisfaction. God offers us a place in his glorious kingdom, but if we hope in riches, we trade that and pursue a tiny little kingdom that's no bigger than our fleshly appetites. God offers us the fount of living water, but if we hope in riches, we end up buying broken cisterns that can't hold any meaningful amount of water. Paul is calling us to place our hope in the giver and not in the gifts. And to Paul, it was clearly about the giver. And if you recall, the passage directly prior to this one is a doxology that exalts this God who provides for us. And that's why we should trust in him. Because we don't serve a miserly God who withholds good from us and only gives us the bare minimum with the tight fist, but we serve a God who provides abundantly. So we've discussed that our attitude towards our riches is an expression of where we place our hope or confidence and ultimately what we worship. Next, Paul gives some specific commands for what the rich are to do once we have the proper perspective towards our riches. And this is going to take us into our third point for this evening, imperatives for the rich. Imperatives for the rich. He says that the rich are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Although we've discussed the dangers and the warnings to the rich in the present age, it's not as if the rich are doomed to be spiritually dead. But the rich actually have a tremendous capacity and a tremendous opportunity to do good and to be rich in good works. So all the effort that might be spent amassing or protecting worldly riches should be applied towards being rich in good works. So Paul here, he's hijacking this word rich. 
to reorient our understanding of what it means to be rich. He's taking the word rich, which has been used to describe those who are materially or financially rich, and then he's turning it around and applying it to something with actual eternal value. And it's not the first time he's done this. It's similar to verses 5 and 6 of this same chapter where he turned around that word gain, you remember that? From something the false teachers were trying to get through some unscrupulous means, and he turned that to great gain, which is what we get from godliness with contentment, something eternal. Paul specifies that we are to be generous. Being generous doesn't specify a certain amount that you're supposed to give, but it talks more about a character of being unselfish and open-handed in giving. So you're not giving in a a tight-fisted, hanging-on-to-it type of manner. But more importantly, to understand what it means to be generous, I think it helps to look at the proximity of where uh, this description occurs. It occurs right after a reminder that we're recipients of a God who richly gives us everything to enjoy. Our generosity should be informed by a God who is generous. Our generosity is informed by who God is and what God has given us and how he gives to us. We should give in a way that reflects the character of our generous and giving God. So your giving is a reflection of how generous God has been to you. Your giving is a reflection of how generous God has been to you. So if you've been bountifully blessed, you can bountifully bless others as well with the assurance that you have a God who will provide all things for you. And if our giving is less than generous, it reflects what we think about God's generosity to us. The text says we're also to be ready to share. And the word, therefore, ready to share is uh, koinonikos, which shares a root with the word for fellowship, koinonia. This means that there is a commonality implicit in this command to be ready to share. So our readiness to share is an aspect of our fellowship with one another, that we don't consider our money or our possessions to be purely our own for us to do whatever we want with. But we need to see them as tools to serve one another. And this shouldn't be like a reluctance or a slow sharing, but a readiness or a quickness to share from what the Lord has given us. It's very much the picture of what was being described in the early church. Uh, In Acts 2, I'll just read that for us. Acts 2.42, it says, this is describing the early church. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, koinonia, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, koinos. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. For those of us who have been blessed materially, we need to remember that this is a stewardship. Your wealth has been entrusted to you by God. And one day he will return and ask each of us to give an account of what we've done with it. So the riches that we have on earth were given to us that we might be generous with them and invest them towards the kingdom of God. In the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story of a man who went on a journey. 
and he set three servants in charge of different amounts of money. And when he returns, the one who received five talents returned five more. The one who received two talents returned two more. And they were given um, from their master, they used what they were given from their master towards earning a return for their master. But one servant didn't make use of what he was given, and he hid it in the ground, kept it, he just kept it. For, and when the master returned, he received a harsh judgment for that. Now, this parable isn't purely talking about money, but it does illustrate that the Lord expects us to make use of what we've been given for his kingdom and for his purposes. Our wealth is not ours, but we're just stewards of it for a temporary time. So when the master returns, will we be able to show a spiritual return on the material wealth that he's entrusted to us? Or will we be empty-handed, like the servant in the parable of the talents who just hid his talent in the ground? We can't take even one penny of our material wealth with us, but we can invest them towards heavenly riches. And that brings us to our final point, which is investment towards heavenly riches. Investment towards heavenly riches. In verse 19, Paul states that the rich who are rich in good works, generous and ready to share, will store up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Again, Paul is subverting our expectations by taking our understanding of riches and then using the same language to reorient us and reveal that we actually should be storing up riches. So all this time, don't store up riches, but now he tells us, you know what? You actually should be storing up riches. So <clears throat> Paul talks about storing up or laying up, which are the same words one would use to describe amassing earthly wealth. And he uses those same terms to instead instruct us to store up true riches for the future. It's similar to what he was doing earlier when he was instructing the materially rich to be rich in good works, right? Christ himself uses very similar words in Matthew 6. And actually turn to this one with me. If you guys turn to Matthew 6, We'll read starting in verse 19. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up or store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. So riches are uncertain, right? But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's talk about worship again. Your heart will be also. So you who are rich, you have the great opportunity to be generous and invest your worldly treasure that's just going to rust and fade anyways and that you can't take with you anyways in order to store up heavenly treasure, which will not disappoint. This, my friends, is a winning investment. This is the hottest stock tip in the universe. Either you can use your earthly wealth to store up earthly riches, which will be destroyed and which also may destroy you, or you can use your earthly wealth to store up heavenly treasures that cannot fade by investing them in the eternal kingdom of God through good works and generosity. The treasure you store in heaven 
can't be taken away. And I'm not talking about buying indulgences here, just to make that clear. Um, I'm not asking you to give more money to the church because you can gain favor with God that way. That's antithetical to the gospel. But this kind of heavenly perspective that Paul is describing here of investing your earthly riches towards heavenly rewards is built upon the gospel and the work that it's doing in your life. The purpose of 1 Timothy, and you guys should have talked about this in your groups, the purpose of 1 Timothy, giving instruction on the kind of behavior that would adorn and reflect the gospel reality that's in the church. The purpose of 1 Timothy is giving instruction on the kind of behavior that would adorn and reflect the gospel reality in the church. And this is how it connects. The gospel saves you. It transforms the entirety of a person, including what you value and including what you desire, turning you away from conforming to the world and what the world desires and values and transforming you into someone who values what God desires. So for the worldly, money is a tool to help you expand your own temporary kingdom. But for the redeemed, money is a tool to put to work for God's eternal purposes. So if your handling of your wealth shows that you're still conformed to the world, what does that say about how much the gospel is worth? How does that adorn the gospel? It communicates that the good news isn't all that great or powerful or able to change a life at all. What you've been given from God materially is meant to be a means to adorn the truth of the gospel. And how you handle your riches says something about the gospel. It can either bring reproach upon the gospel or it can highlight that. So if we approach our money from an eternal perspective, we communicate that this world is not my treasure, but Christ is my treasure. This world is not my treasure, but Christ is my treasure. Christ is infinitely more valuable than the wealth that I have on this earth. Our money will be spent investing in what we treasure. That's going to be either in worldly riches, which will rust and fade, or it will be with Christ and his kingdom into eternity. Those who have the gospel are called to be like the man who sold all he had to buy the pearl of great price or the man who sold all he had to buy a field with a valuable treasure in it? Do we also show how valuable Christ is to us by how we handle our money? So the last part of this verse says that by doing this, the rich take hold of that which is truly life. And this idea of taking hold of life or eternal life should sound familiar. It's what Paul exhorted Timothy to do in the previous passage in 1 Timothy 6. And the implication here is that the life that we seek in earthly riches, it's not truly life. It will seem like life because earthly riches, they seem like the real deal. You can see it, you can touch it, you can experience it right now. And the world conditions you to believe that too. But we're not supposed to be conformed to this world. Our mind has been renewed so that we can see that these riches, the worldly riches, they're just a counterfeit an imitation that is guaranteed to disappoint. So instead of using our wealth to secure for ourselves a counterfeit life, a counterfeit assurance, and a counterfeit salvation, we need to use our wealth 
as people whose hearts are transformed by the good news of the gospel so that we can take hold of true riches, true salvation, true assurance, and that which is truly life. Let me go ahead and close our time in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word, and even though sometimes your word can hurt, we know that ultimately it is what we need. Your word is what gives life, Lord. And Father, I just thank you, Lord, for the instruction that you've given us here through your servant Paul, letting us know that how we handle our wealth, how we handle our money matters. And we're not just free to do with it whatever we want, Lord, but we're stewards. We've been entrusted with material possessions, worldly riches, Lord, and we have a tremendous opportunity, Lord, to invest it for your kingdom. Or we have a tremendous um, vulnerability, Lord, to let that, a love for that, destroy us. So, Father, would you help us? Would you guide us? Would you help us put off the love of money? And would you help us to put on a desire to invest in your kingdom instead? So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.